Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be uplifted, empowered and revived by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now let's get into this week's message. so encouraged and I'm sure you are too. Thank you so much, Sven and Maria, for sharing with us. Can we pray over them just before we um, shift and receive from the word in a different way this afternoon? Father, we thank you for this wonderful family. We thank you that we are the family of God together and not only that, Lord, but uh, we're also friends who love each other and enjoy Lord, being around each other. And Father, I ask that there would be an increase to the grace, grace, grace upon them in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that they have put their hand to the plow and they have not looked back. And so, Father, we ask that there would be great fruitfulness through their lives. That, Lord, while they're here in Manchester, they would receive that joy that they spoke about. And that through them, you would release, Lord, your heart in Germany. We agree with them right now. Lord, over the nation of Germany, Father, we ask for the increase of your work and your kingdom in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can you thank them one more time? Let's grab our Bibles together and go to the book of Acts. We're going to be spending time in a couple of different passages there, ultimately making our way to Acts 13, but most likely beginning in Acts chapter 11. We're going to be considering the church in a city called Antioch. Acts chapter 13 is where we'll end up, but considering a few verses from Acts chapter 11. This is our vision series, and we have been talking about some key components to the culture here at Ramp Church in order to frame who we are as a people and where we're going together. And so we've had three services so far, three Sundays in this series. The first one, Joe talked about being a presence-centric people, that we are a people who are after the manifest presence of God. The next week, Stacy was going to preach, but it's kind of like God wanted to demonstrate what Joe preached about the service before. So we all came together and just stepped into an extended worship moment where we began to just simply do what God has called us to do and be who God has called us to be. And of course, last week you heard from James as he talked about being a consecrated people. So if you've missed any of these messages, we encourage you to go back on the Ramp Church YouTube channel and catch up on that or on the Ramp Church podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. So here's where I want to start today, just picking up on the last few messages. A consecrated, presence-centric people will ultimately begin to grow in their prophetic sensitivity. And as a people grow in prophetic sensitivity, they will inevitably collide with a missional mandate. So a consecrated, presence-centric people will begin to grow in their prophetic sensitivity. And as a people grow in their prophetic sensitivity, they will collide with a missional mandate from God. 
We see that modeled very clearly in the book of Acts through the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch is a community of people that I would describe as a Levite community. They have this DNA about them that is reminiscent of the Old Testament Levites. And that really is a reference point for us as a church. It really is a reference point for us as a people about the kind of DNA that is among us. The Levites were a consecrated tribe. They were totally set apart to God in a unique way. They lived by a different rhythm. Things that other people did, even within Israel, things that other tribes did, they didn't do. Why? Because they belonged to God in a specific way. They were consecrated. Not only that, but they were a tribe that hosted the manifest presence of God. When David the king put the ark in the city of Jerusalem, he didn't just set it to the side to consult it when he needed it. He didn't just go inquire after God when he had a puzzle or a question he couldn't figure out. No, he made the presence of God the centerpiece of the nation. And the way that he did that was not by, you know, just putting some religious relics around the presence of God. He got a community of people who were hungry for God's presence, and he trained them to minister to the Lord. That community of people was the Levites. He trained them to be musicians. He trained them in songwriting. And he put them on a 24-7 rotation so that the presence of God was never without a people who were ministering to him. Because the presence of God is not carried by the programs of the church. The presence of God is carried by the people within the church. You cannot separate his presence from his people. They go together. So the way we become a presence-centric church is not by crafting better worship sets. It's not by polishing up our sophisticated programs. The way we become a presence-centric church is by being a people who are hungry for his presence. That Levite mixture of being consecrated and of being aware of and attentive to him is found in the church at Antioch. We know there are consecrated people because of different things it says in Acts chapter 11. Now, what I love about the Christian community at Antioch is that it broke out spontaneously. It was not planned by the apostles in Jerusalem. Actually, they gave it leadership after it already began. Something started breaking out in Antioch, and all the apostles in Jerusalem said, well, something's happening. I guess we better send somebody. And it's amazing to me this spontaneous outbreak of God's Spirit. So as we're contending in prayer for revival in Manchester and across the UK and on into the nations of Europe, Europe let's agree that God does something bigger than the planning of the church. It's not that our planning doesn't matter. It's just that his spirit is not limited to our concepts about what he is capable of. And so what happens at Antioch was a spontaneous outbreak of salvation. People begin to believe in Jesus as Lord 
and Savior. So the apostles, they send Barnabas down. And watch what Barnabas does. This is in Acts chapter 11, verse 22. Then the news of these things, of this spontaneous outbreak in Antioch, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now here's where we begin to see the consecration piece. It becomes a central feature in Antioch. Verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Now I love the New King James translation overall as a Bible, but honestly the New King James here really doesn't bear out the, the, the fundamental element that Barnabas was calling them to. The old King James does it better. It says that he encouraged them that with purpose of heart, they would cleave to the Lord. Not just continue with the Lord, cleave. The first time the King James uses the word cleave is in the context of marriage. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. What happened when Barnabas showed up? He showed up and said, you've believed. That's only just the beginning. Now it's time to press into covenant and cleave to God in an exclusive, intimate relationship. What did we hear last week from James? That consecration puts up boundaries around the intimacy in your relationship with God. That is the motivation behind consecration. Many of you are familiar with the call of the Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6. That call never connects consecration to purpose, though we know that consecration prepares you for purpose. It never says to the Nazarites, if you want to change the world, then take the Nazarite vow. It says, if anyone who wants to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord, let them do this. In other words, the motivation behind the consecration was simply relationship. And that's what we see here in Antioch. Barnabas gets there and he says, now that you've believed, press in further and cleave to the one in whom you have believed. That is active in the life at Antioch. You read a few verses later in Acts chapter 11 and you find out that the believers in Jesus were first called Christians at Antioch. Why? Because they're living so differently than the world, the world finally had to look at these Jesus people and say, they're so different, we've got to give them some kind of name. They are so different, so unusual, we've got to call them something. That's how consecrated they were. They created a new category in history because they did not live by the pattern of this world. What if Manchester looked at you, looked at us as a community, and they said within themselves, we've got to create a new category of language because we don't know how to describe accurately who these people really are. But they didn't just live consecrated, they lived present-centric. You get to... Acts chapter 13, and you find them in a prayer meeting. And they're not just praying God's agenda, they're attentive to God's heart. We'll read it in just a moment, but it says in Acts chapter 13 that as they ministered to the Lord. What an amazing phrase. The, again, the only context we have for that phrase, minister to the Lord, is the Old Testament Levites. David set them up 
to play music and to let worship arise in order to minister to him. So this consecrated people in Antioch, they're, again, not just consecrated for purpose. They are consecrated for presence. And they're saying, God, you are our highest delight when we get together. And we're about to read it. Their leadership team got together not just to strategize about leadership. Their leadership team got together to minister to him and say, God, we're here for you. Now, what we're about to see is that in Antioch, this consecrated, presence-centric people, they grow in prophetic sensitivity. We don't have time to teach all the ways they grew in prophetic sensitivity, but you actually see their progression throughout Acts. They grew in their prophetic sensitivity, their awareness of the Holy Spirit's leadership, their awareness of the voice of God. They begin to grow in their prophetic sensitivity, and as they do, whoo, they collide with a missional mandate. Acts chapter 13. Verses 1 through 3. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. I love it. They were a prophetic house and a teaching house. They knew what God said through teaching, and they knew what God was saying through prophecy. You need both in order to be a missional community. You have to be rooted in what has been written, and you need to be moved by what he is saying. So in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now I love that it included the list of leaders here in Acts 13.1 because their backgrounds could not be more different. You had Saul a Pharisee leading on the same team with someone who was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. <laughs> then you've got this guy Lucius from Cyrene, Simeon who's from Niger, and Barnabas who, by the way, was a Levite. You go back to Acts chapter 4 and you find out that Barnabas was a Levite who believed in Jesus and sold everything. And it's because of his Levite DNA that he infuses it into the atmosphere of the church. That's a whole other message about Barnabas. So you see this mix. That all these different backgrounds, and this is important for us, all these different backgrounds united by being a consecrated presence-centric people. It didn't matter their background. It didn't matter that this one over here came up with Herod the Tetrarch. It doesn't matter this one over here was a Pharisee. It doesn't matter that this one was an immigrant from a different nation. They were all united by being a consecrated, presence-centric people. What happens next? Verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We're set apart. We're ministering to the Lord. And in this place of consecration and presence, they're colliding with a missional mandate. And he's saying to them, I know you've already been set apart to me for my presence. Now there's an additional separation that's coming and it's for my purpose. I am commissioning you to go on my behalf to the nations. And though it was specifically to Barnabas and Saul, 
it was something that they embraced as an entire community. How do we know that? Because of verse 3. Then having fasted and prayed. They were fasting to get a word. And when they got the word, they fasted to seal the word. So they were fasting to minister to him. He speaks and then they fast in order to activate what he says. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. The whole community responds in agreement and harmony to this missional mandate. Now, I believe that as we have embraced the, the, the first two aspects of Antioch, being a consecrated, presence-centric people, that we are growing in our prophetic sensitivity. And let me warn you, as you do, beware, a missional mandate is coming. For some of you, that equals nations. That doesn't equal nations for everyone. Though on some level you are called to engage on an intercessory level in that capacity. But even if the missional mandate doesn't send you to nations, you live where you are as though you're in the nations. When you collide with the heart of God, suddenly your hometown is no longer your hometown. Suddenly your hometown is your mission field because you see it through the lens of the heart of God. You collide with a missional mandate. And the beautiful thing about Antioch is they go from being a local work to a global movement. But the one doesn't destroy the other. As Antioch sends their two founding leaders to the nations, guess what happens? The work in Antioch gets stronger. Now, we just think, again, Barnabas and Saul, okay? No, those were the two leading pastoral prophetic teaching voices. That would be like the Lord saying, send Joe and Stacy. That's not where this message is going, by the way. I feel really uncomfortable right now. Like, Lord. I said that it would be as though he said that, okay? Send Barnabas and Saul. And you would think, Lord, what's happening to Antioch? Are they moving into this missional hub now? And is that destroying the local work? No, what happens over and over, if you read out throughout Acts, what happens is Saul goes, Saul, he becomes Paul on this missional journey. Which is amazing that Jesus didn't change his name at conversion. Jesus changed his name in the activation of his assignment. Because something different happens when you embrace a missional mandate. You think differently. You look at the world differently. You act differently. And for some of you, it's not just your initial conversion to Christianity that's going to change you. It's when you say yes to God's global heart. And so he, his name changes on this first, first missionary journey, and he becomes Paul. And if you read throughout Acts, what happens is Paul, he goes all across the nations. And what does he do? Then he comes back for a while to Antioch. He jumps back into the team. He's teaching. They're growing. And then he gets sent out again. And he goes, and you get this sense that Antioch's not dying. Antioch is growing because it's sending. Wow. 
the more missional it became, the more healthy it became. The more sending it became, the more stable it became. The more global it became, the more local it became. Because Antioch matures into being a global reference point for what God's doing in the nations. I believe, uh, maybe I'm overstepping boundaries, I don't know. I believe that as we, Ramp Church Manchester, become more globally minded, we will actually become more locally rooted. Because God wants to make Manchester an anchor point for nations. I was in a prayer meeting not too long ago. And band, you can go ahead and begin to join me up here. I, was at, I say I was in a prayer meeting not too long ago. I guess it was about seven years ago. So, I don't know. Sometimes prophetic stories, they all start to... And it was before... It was before um, Ramp Church Manchester was started. We were in Hamilton, Alabama, and a lot of you know the prophetic story. The Lord spoke to our community and said, pray double for the launch of a work in Manchester. So we began to do that. We had already had morning prayer meetings 8 a.m., five days every weekday. So then we added an 8 p.m. prayer meeting. So it was every morning, every night, praying over the launch of something in Manchester. As we were praying over that, there was a young lady from the UK, Pastor Andy Elms' daughter, Olivia. She was there in those prayer meetings, and she said, as we were praying, the Lord showed me a picture. And the picture is that England is like a house, and Manchester is the hearth. There's a fire God wants to put in Manchester that will warm the entire house of England and the UK. And I believe you're here to be a log on the fire. You're here to be one of those burning individuals that are set apart to God and attentive to Him so that your prophetic capacity is able to hold a missional mandate. And from that place, you begin to move in the rhythms of his heart, praying for nations, active where you are, serving and faithful and doing the hard work. You're rolling up your sleeves. Mission isn't always romantic and exciting. A lot of hard work, a lot of relationships, a lot of money management, a lot of stuff to figure out. But you do it because you've been captivated by his heart. You're saying, Lord, here I am. Send me. If you're looking for someone to move, you can move me. If you're looking for someone to activate, you can activate me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. If you'll stand on your feet this afternoon, we're going to take a moment and just simply respond to the Lord's invitation. <laughs> oh, what an invitation. You know, one of the things that moves me the most about Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah the prophet saying, here am I, Lord, send me, is that God never asked him directly to go. Isaiah gets caught up 
in a heavenly place. And he's seeing the throne of God. And he's seeing these heavenly creatures. And he's broken over his condition and he's purified with fire from the altar. And in that place of being a consecrated, presence-centric prophet, he overhears a conversation in heaven. And the conversation he hears in heaven is this. Who will go for us? And when Isaiah hears the conversation, he doesn't wait for God to look at him directly and say, will it be you? He simply responds, here am I. He interrupts the council meeting in heaven to volunteer and say, you don't have to keep asking. Here am I, send me. And I wonder if there's anybody here this afternoon that is willing to respond before God even asks and say, God, here am I, send me, interrupt my world. Lord, give me a mandate. Lord, change my name if you have to, but use me for your glory.